We'll read a few extracts from Genesis chapter 1 in just a moment. Before, before we do, let me give you another reading. Uh, this is taken from Atrahasis Tablet 1. Uh, this is part of the creation uh, story from one of Israel's neighbors in Babylon. This is a slightly edited version. When the gods, instead of man, did the work, bore the loads, the gods' load was too great, the work too hard, the trouble too much. They called upon the goddess, asked the midwife of the gods, wise Mami, you are the womb goddess to be the creator of mankind, create a mortal that he may bear the yoke. Let him bear the yoke, the work of Elil. Let him bear the load of the gods. And now, the word of the Lord, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start at verse 1. Um, and we're just going to read a sort of slightly edited version of the first couple of chapters here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. We're going to skip to day six. Day two, God separates uh, the sky and the sea. Day three, he separates the sea from the land um, and creates vegetation. In day four, he creates the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, he creates the fish and the birds. And then we're going to pick up in 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man. In his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit in it, they will be food for you. I'm going to skip to Genesis 2 now. Um, not wanting to jump ahead with the preaching, but I'm treating Genesis 1 and 2 as basically separate creation accounts. Um, so this is a different perspective on the same story. Uh, and we're just going to read a few verses, starting in verse 4. Um, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. 
The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then just one more verse, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So um, you've picked up by now, we're looking at climate change this morning. Um, And I I don't know about you, but when I hear words like climate change or sustainable living or all these kinds of things, my primary response is one of a sense of guilt, a sense of helplessness. I'm, I'm not doing enough. Every time I get in the car, whereas I, when I could have walked, it's almost, I can almost feel that block of ice falling off uh, the Arctic ice shelf. Um, I feel even more hopeless when it's bin day and I look around the recycling boxes up and down the street as I take the dog out for a walk in the morning and realise that actually there's a lot of people that don't take this stuff very seriously. And I'm aware every time I go into the shops how to live on organic, free-range, sustainable, locally produced food is quite expensive. And actually for a lot of folk who are not very wealthy, they couldn't actually probably survive if they really tried to restrict themselves uh, to some of the more sustainable food. Um, I, I make a real point of avoiding those articles that appear on the BBC News that tell me once again uh, that scientists have discovered that the rate of polar bear decline is, is more serious than previously thought. Because there's just that sense of hopelessness and helplessness. What's the point? I'm feeling guilty enough already. Now, the, the church globally has not had the best relationship with the whole area of, uh, of the physical world, thinking historically. Um, in, in the context in which some of the old, older among us would have grown up, there was a real sense of a separation of the physical and the spiritual, that sense that the physical doesn't really matter because it's all just going to burn. Um, and on the other hand, that sense that at the end, the goal of our faith is to float away as a sort of disembodied soul, to sit on a cloud, uh, timeless and unchanging. Um, so why bother to look after this world? Dare I say, if that's your view of heaven, why bother following Jesus? But actually, a lot of those perspectives are changing. There's a a growing sense of how God values the natural, physical world. We've remembered how he's poured his creativity uh, into forming and filling this world. And that the goal of our faith, in fact, is to inhabit an earth that will be renewed and purified by God. A place that is, is different and yet somehow in continuity with the world that we experience. And that somehow the work we do day by day with our hands somehow echoes into all eternity and is therefore important. We follow a Christ who became body, um, who worked as a carpenter, who spent most of his life enjoying bits of wood, 
selecting which one he was going to use, looking across it to see whether or not it was straight. We've realized that God loves the natural world. It is an, it's a vital part of his, the story of God in our lives. Um, and of course, as a result of that, we're passionate about things like recycling and living sustainably on the whole. But of course, like all things in our faith, these things can become something of a, a legalism. They can become detached from their true purpose and they become a source of guilt. We do the stuff that Christians do um, uh, and we do that because that's what Christians do um, and then we feel guilty when we don't quite manage to do them. Whereas in fact, of course, everything that we do as Christians is supposed to not be driven by guilt but by driven, be, be driven by our sense of our identity. It's supposed to be an expression of who we are becoming in Christ. And this has been the, the main purpose of everything we've looked at in Ephesians over the last few weeks. That sense that what we do is simply the living out of the, the story of God that he has welcomed us into. So today, as we think about how the church might respond to some of these issues, both together as a community um, and also as individuals uh, living our own lives outside of the church. I'm really keen that this isn't a guilt trip. This is not a command to do more. Um, It's more about seeing that that stuff is supposed to pour naturally and joyfully out of the sense of who we are in Christ. Our care for creation and our enjoyment of it are the things that make us human. They are the ways in which we image God. And if the call to the Christian faith is a call back to our full created humanity, uh, then it cannot be separated from our relationship with the natural world. Evangelism without care for the environment is a nonsense. It's even a hypocrisy. But I also want to explore the idea that actually we're all involved in creation care, whether we know it or not. Everything that we do at work or rest or play is, in a sense, at least potentially, part of caring for the environment. You know, whenever you put a wash on at home, uh, whenever you send an email, whenever you complete a business deal, whenever you enjoy a latte, um, there is a sense in which you are just as much a part of caring for creation as somebody who chains himself to a tree in the Amazon. And I, and I don't mean just if you use e-cover soap, and I don't mean if you, your email is about your company's green policy or if your latte is in a sustainably sourced cup. Um, of course that stuff matters, um, and we'll be thinking a lot about that, hopefully, in the, in the coming months. But I mean that fundamentally, the very nature of those activities and those things uh, are part of a right relationship with creation. The eco stuff is the, what we might call the organic cherry on the environmentally sourced uh, cake. Um, and we should understand uh, that whether we are composting a tea bag or playing rugby, uh, all that we do as Christians needs to be understood directly or indirectly as part of creation care. And if we fail to see things that way, then we're actually missing out on a core part of our humanity 
and therefore of our Christianity. So let me try and show you where I've got to, how I've got to some of that stuff. Um, one might summarize the whole story of the Bible uh, in three basic ideas. The story starts in a garden and it ends in a city and it goes via a desert. This is the basic contour of the Christian life. Garden, desert, city. So at the start, back in our Genesis passage that we read, uh, we see that the world is formless and empty. In, in ancient Near Eastern thought, it is empty because it is formless. In, in the chaos of the, the primordial chaos is a place that life cannot be. So God spends three days separating the chaos into ordered categories, light from dark, sea from sky, sea from land. And then God starts to fill this new created order with life, with vegetation, with birds, with fish, with animals. So you have three days of subduing uh, the chaos and three days of filling with life. And the result is this garden, the Garden of Eden of Genesis 1 and 2. It is a beautiful and good garden. And it is full of unrealized potential. Uh, And God creates humanity and tells them to continue his creative acts. Fill and subdue are the two words that he uses that reflect everything that he's done so far for what we are to continue to do uh, on the earth. In other words, we are to build a city. Now, that's not a concrete jungle. It's not a place where we escape the natural world. Uh, not a place where our relationships are at their most dysfunctional, while those might be part of what we think of with a city. But rather, it's a city uh, which is based on a community of people who live in perfect harmony with each other, with their God, and with the earth that they tend. Um, and this act of tending inherently becomes a societal act. There's that sense of as we build community, it is as a society that we start to, that we continue to fill and subdue uh, the earth. We don't do it as just a whole bunch of individuals. Um, and that, so that's the basic idea in the Bible of a city. It's about those perfect relationships between each other with God and with the world around us. This is the commission of Genesis 1 and 2 that underlies all that we do. But, but one th- and I'm sure you've heard a lot of this stuff before, um, but one of the things that I think is really important that, that needs to be brought out um, is that this is by no means a one-way relationship. Um, in fact, this is one of the main distinctives of the Hebrew or the Israelite idea of the created world compared to the, uh, the nations around it. If, uh, you were, if you were familiar with that Atrahasis story that I read to you at the beginning, um, if that was the context in which you heard Genesis 1 and 2, this would have been very striking. Um, in, in all of these cultures, there was a sense in which humanity's purpose was to, to tend the earth, to look after the earth. But as we saw, in most cultures, this was a burden that had to be born. This was a yoke. Uh, and it was there so that the gods didn't have to work as hard as they had been working because they were all exhausted. So there's that sense... So there's a sense of humanity being enslaved 
uh, to the gods in their work of create in, of the, in their work within creation. Whereas in Genesis, God chooses to create, and He does so in total freedom, and He does so out of His own abundance. There's this idea that creation is fundamentally unnecessary. Um, and there is no sense that God needs our help uh, to, to look after the world, but he chooses to invite us into it. Um, and it is in our care of it uh, that we get to enjoy it as beautiful and to be sustained by it. That verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, has that wonderful sense of how every tree in the garden was both pleasing to the eye and good for food. So when we tend the earth, we experience it as beautiful and as nourishing, and and we are to tend the earth towards that end, towards those qualities. One of the bits that we didn't read out, but I I love that bit um, where uh, God brings the animals to Adam to name, and I think it's you could do a wonderful sketch on it. I'm not much of a sketch writer, but I have this image of, of, uh, of Adam walking the garden with, with Yahweh, and Yahweh points to this, to item number one. And Adam sort of goes, wow, God, it's got this huge, it's got this big dangly nose that reaches right down to the ground. What were you thinking, God? It's a ridiculous-looking animal. And God sort of smiles with delight. Um, and Adam says, well, I think I'm going to call it hose nose. And, of course, that's where we get the word elephant. You didn't, probably didn't know that. In fact, we didn't. Um, um, and then Yahweh moves on and points to item number two. Um, and uh, you, can imagine, you can imagine Adam sort of going, well, it's a, it's a tree. Um, it's got these massive green fronds and loads of, sort of yellow fingers hanging down in bunches and again again god it's a little bit weird but it's beautiful and god says well why don't you try eating one and uh, adam munches on a leaf and doesn't find that very tasty he munches on a one of these yellow things and god says no no no, no you're supposed to peel it so he peels it and he opens up oh it's delicious he says, right i'm gonna call it sweet yellow fingers of delight which is how we get the word banana um Creation is amazing, it is beautiful, and it nourishes us. Um, and there's that sense that in our naming of creation, inherent, inherent in that is that we get to experience it, we are supposed to experience it, we're supposed to study it, and we have authority over it. We get to name what we have authority over. So that's the garden, uh, tra- and the, the sense of movement from the garden to the city. But unfortunately, in the midst of that, somehow uh, we have allowed seeds of distrust, of discontent with God to creep in uh, and to be sown in our hearts. And our relationship with God uh, that's in the garden gets fractured. Um, And as a result, our relationship with each other becomes fractured. And our relationship with the earth becomes fractured. Um, uh, Somehow the chaos and formlessness the beginning of Genesis 1, starts to seep uh, back in, uh, destroying the life with which the earth is filled. And this is the desert that we talked about, introduced in Genesis chapter 3. It's a place that is hostile towards us. Uh, We cannot fill and subdue fully. The the beauty and nourishment is now mixed with poison, uh, with suffering, uh, with danger. 
And there's a sense in which the joy of tending the earth becomes a toil. But that original commission is still there. That sense of build a city out of the garden is still there, um, even if it is infused with distrust and selfishness. The next chapter, chapter 4, has the story of Cain and Abel. And I don't know if you've noticed uh, that we have the beginnings of society, that sense of, well, I'll grow, I'll grow vegetables, you grow animals. Beginning of society. Um, later in the story, Cain builds a city, and we see, as the descendants grow, that sense of, the, of, of, of society beginning to take form. We have the fathers of farming, of the arts, uh, of industry, um, and yet in this, at the same time all of this happens within fractured relationships and so sin starts to blossom within this broken world we get mistrust, jealousy, anger and of course murder society becomes a context of death and destruction as well as filling with life so that means that society also needs doctors uh, it needs police, security companies, insurance companies, lawyers Industry suddenly needs to include making keys, uh, making uh, uh, helmets, making weapons. Uh, Society becomes more and more complex, uh, and its relationship with the created world, as a result, gets more and more indirect. Food now comes from shelves, not from plants. And uh, its constant presence around us makes us completely take for granted our, uh, our And we've forgotten our our complete reliance on the ground. And yet God does not give up on his plan. He will build his city um, and he invites us into it. But that will require the healing of those relationships. Uh, That will require uh, those fractured relationships to be mended between God and us, uh, between us and and each other, and uh, our relationship with the earth. And in Christ, these relationships are healed. God reconquers a wayward world, reconciling it to himself and destroying every element that insists on remaining in conflict to it. Creation, once again, is beautiful and nourishing. And this is the city uh, for which we long. And as the Bible story comes to an end, John sees the new city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Behold, I am making everything new. But of course we're not there yet. Um, And the challenge for us today and tomorrow is to live as citizens of that city in the desert today. Um, I'd like to, uh, to give you a little summary of this, which is on uh, a friend of mine called Chris Kandaya, uh, just, uh, used, he created this as a way of thinking about the gospel uh, story in terms of our relationships. And it's, it's very simple. Uh, you, um, the person in the middle is either a man wearing a kilt or um, a, a woman. And, um, <clears throat> and it's that basic idea that God created us there in the middle as individuals placed us in authority over the earth, placed us in relationship with each other 
and place us with a right sense of self. Now, that's an element that Chris uses, which we haven't talked about, but it's, it's nice because it completes the cross, doesn't it? And then uh, his second picture is simply this, that, of course, in what we call the fall, each of these relationships get fractured, and that is why we experience suffering, distrust in all of those relationships. And then in Christ, again, once again, they all get remade. And, and it's simply that. To live as a Christian is to live in a way that demonstrates a, the reconciled relationships in all of these directions with God, with each other, with the earth, and with a sense of who we are. So to draw us back to where we started, there is that sense uh, that our lives are full of creation care. We just need to understand uh, how that is and how it flows out of our sense of identity. When, if you have a child who enjoys Lego, as I certainly did as a child, they probably do something else these days, I don't know. But when I was a child, I loved Lego. That is, in a sense, that is filling and subduing, that is bringing order out of chaos. It's so inherent in what we do. Um, when a child uh, spots a ladybird, is fascinated by it. Or dare I say, a slug, a pebble, all sorts of things. Um, they are wondering at creation. They are lifting it. Um, into its meaning uh, within the created order. Um, So what I want to ask you is, if you think about what you're going to be doing tomorrow, um, how does your work and your rest and your play reflect this story? How how is it? uh, How does your work create order out of chaos? How does it enable life to flourish? How does it fight the forces of chaos and suffering? Um, How does it restore those broken relationships between us, um, our world, our God, each other? And how, in a societal situation, do we enable others uh, to do that? Now, it might, might be that you need to give a bit of thought to what that means. But, but I believe that actually if we're doing good meaningful work, we will always in some way, even if it's really indirectly, be able to connect our work to that. Working as a as a um, as a a technical writer for the music industry, which is what I was using a lot of my time with for, I I've struggled with the fact that I couldn't sense that link with the with the creation care. But it's there, you know, that sense that well I was certainly bringing order out of chaos in a direct sense of having all of this stuff that had to be explained nice and tidily. And I got a deep sense of satisfaction from that process. But at the same time, I'm enabling others to do their job uh, by understanding what the equipment does and how to do it. Um, And that equipment uh, was an important part of culture and society, enabling recordings to be made, broadcasts uh, to be broadcast, and so on. enabling the whole of society to function. Um, Maybe just in a moment of quiet, you might want to think about how it is uh, that you might try and be conscious of that in your day tomorrow. Um, I I should say that a number of of you might struggle to work that out. Don't panic. (laughs) I'm sure we can make it connect. Um, I don't mean this to be, uh, again, a point of fear. 
but a point of drawing meaning into the work that you do and connecting it to creation care. You're doing the same thing as when you compost a tea bag. So let's just take a moment of quiet. <laughs>